Uh, a warm welcome uh, on behalf of the STR division. Uh, I want to welcome you to this fabulous event. Uh, this is one, as you can see on the screen, this is one of uh, several different uh, research symposia that the division has uh, conceived of. And um, uh, this one is on uh, new perspectives on industry and ecosystem emergence. So we've got a fabulous lineup. I'm sure you're going to enjoy. Uh, make a note of these other presentations. And, and uh, we've got, as you can see, we've got um, symposia for every track in the, in the division. So some may be of more interest to you than others. But uh, without further ado, um, uh, enjoy the symposium. Thanks very much for attending. All right, Paolo Aversa, take it over. Hi, everyone. So my name is uh, Paolo Aversa. I am the SDR DV communication um, director, and I've been organizing uh, this, uh, this symposium. Today, we're going to talk about a very uh, timely and uh, interesting topic. And we have uh, some of the people who have mostly contributed to this uh, literature, uh, both as presenter and uh, discussants. And uh, we have uh, great support from uh, Gwen Lee that is gonna chair the, the entire event and Jiao that is uh, managing the complex, uh, <laughs> uh, let's say Zoom uh, system so that everything goes smoothly. Uh, without further ado, uh, I'll pass the, the mm, let's say the lead to, to Gwen and thank her for chairing this fantastic event. Wonderful. Uh, so just a very brief, uh, showing of the structure on how we will proceed today. Uh, there will be a total uh, of uh, four papers and uh, I'm not going to uh, pronounce uh, all the names. Uh, I'll leave that to the presenter, uh, but I'm so happy that we have a collection of wonderful working papers uh, giving us new perspectives on industry and ecosystem emergence. Uh, we were going to proceed in the order that is presented here on the slide. Uh, so we have uh, uh, creating competencies for radical technologies, revisiting incumbent entrant dynamics in the bionic prosthetic industry, and followed by back to the future, technology reemergence through the lens of music synthesizers, then zooming in or zooming out, entrance product usage breadth in the nascent drone industry, and the grand tour, the role of catalyzing places for industry emergence. The way we're going to proceed is to have uh, a paired structure. So we're going to have the presenter of paper one followed by the discussant of paper one. Then we go straight to paper two, three, and then four. We're not going to be taking live questions via speech, but we will be taking questions in the chat box. So as you listen to uh, the presentations, we will take your input, your comments, and your questions, and then put them together at the end uh, of the presentation. Uh, there will be uh, an all uh, plenary 20-minute um, Q&A, we hope. And uh, I have already received a list of questions when people signed up through registration. So feel free to add those questions, and then I will monitor the Q&A to make sure all four papers get uh, balanced uh, coverage uh, in the Q&A. Um, but if I don't have time to cover every question, um, I will send them to the authors and then please feel free to uh, get in touch with the authors as well. All right, so without further delay, let's go ahead with paper one, Rashree. 
Thank you, Gwen, and thank you everyone in the strategic management division for all of your innovations. We are in fact stronger together and it's awesome to see 142 participants in this session where I'm also presenting with several of my old friends, some advice, you know, advisees. Um, before, as I start with the presentation, let me also go ahead and uh, so do you see my presentation slides? Is everyone able to see my, yeah, great. Yes. Uh, great, so let me just give me one second in or reorganizing my slide structure slightly. So this is a paper that is uh, co-authored with both Sojin Kim and Brent Goldfarb. Sojin, do you wanna just pop up and say hi? Um, hi everyone. Yes. And so please, as I'm presenting, feel free to even put uh, uh, questions and thoughts in the chat feature. Sojin will monitor it and do it. This is actually a part of her dissertation chapter too. So I've learned a lot from Sojin, both from her own deep dives as well as uh, working with her in this co-authored project. So let me go ahead and uh, start then. The title of the paper, of course, is Creating Competencies for Radical Technologies, Revisiting Incumbent Entrant Dynamics in the Bionic Prosthetics Industry. Now, the reason why this matters for um, industry emergence is, of course, um, in a study where we reviewed many of the papers written by many of the people that are in this audience and in the presenter section, you know, nascent industries can be characterized by three stages, uh, which end with sales takeoff. But uh, the origination of these industries is not at the time of first commercialization, but something that triggers an incubation period itself. And of course, scientific discoveries that lead to radical technologies are one of the most important ways in which industries emerge through this process. Now, this is where, in a recent paper with Maka as well as Kim, uh, Sojin, we uh, discussed and reviewed some of the recent literature on how, is in, how are industries incubated. And a fundamental insight that comes in from these studies is that post-industry incubation trigger, there has to be significant investment in building an industry's knowledge base in the form of technology and demand, which is what occupies most attentions of the actors based on their why, their who, and their what. And in particular, what I wanna drive to your attention, which we'll be building on, is that this knowledge base is often built by very heterogeneous and diverse and numerous actors that bring in their prior knowledge to bear so that the industry knowledge for the technology and demand can be developed. So for us, the research question then is, within the context of this bionic prosthetics industry, how may heterogeneous firms be differentially positioned within a new technological system uh, during industry emergence? Uh, and of course, utilizing uh, prior knowledge in this, in this arena, we're gonna be focusing on incumbents, established firms from other industries and startups. Note in particular, our very careful delineation that we're not talking about these as diversifying entrants. 
as has often been referred to. And then of course, how do these positions and their activities condition their responses and subsequent competitive position in a new industry for implications on entrant incumbent dynamics? So what you'll notice here is that we're actually gonna rely on two definitions of radical technology that has been used in the literature. The dominant form that we in technology and strategic management are used to are really this focus on radicalness based on economic effects, where technologies and tools are, are as tools of knowledge between inputs and outputs. And the definition of radical technology often hinges on whether or not existing technological regimes are rendered obsolete or not, and whether it destroys the competence of incumbents. On the other hand, within the technology management literature, there is a rich complementary, sometimes intersecting uh, knowledge uh, stream, which talks about technology as a system that integrates components. And here particularly radical technology is identified not based on its economic effects, but on whether or not the purpose is being served using a new or different base principle than used before. And so we are going to, so our conceptual map very quickly for this paper is to combine all both literature streams where we rely on the prior history literature where the focal purpose is being served by existing technologies, relevant component technologies can be utilized for different purposes, and you are bringing in new component knowledge for in terms of both discoveries and creation. This is what is critical to investments during the incubation period for the creation of radical technology that often requires identification and creation of both component and architectural system knowledge. And this only occurs through a process of recursive problem solving. And then of course, the economic effects of these investments can be realized in the value capture strategy in terms of both entry in commercialization or product markets, alliances and markets for technology or acquisitions and markets for corporate control. Now, the reason why we believe that this paper adds to this literature is because on the one hand, we are addressing a gap in the economic effects of technology definition where it abstract, you know, uh, sorry, so the nature of technology, one of the nice things about it is that it reduces the circularity in the definitions that are caused because the literature on economic effects conflates the economic effects with the prior histories. So there's a circularity in the definition in as much as radical technologies are those that render incumbent com competencies obsolete. So of course, incumbents are not gonna be positioned to do well in this new technological regime. On the other hand, in the nature of technology literature, they're pretty much silent on where do these prior relevant capabilities reside and who engages at the economic actor level on recursive problem solving for identification and creation of architectural knowledge. So given this, we're going to be using the context of bionic prosthetics, which of course uses profoundly new base principles, as opposed to conventional prosthetics where it was using materials, body movements and mechanical principles 
to move prosthetics. Bionic prosthetics represent an emerging industry where there is neuroengineering, computer science, and electrical engineering to help resolve these issues and especially enable communication between the body and the device. So our approach to this is the use of both quantitative data and business history. So this is the newer methodology that has been um, highlighted by many people, in, including people in this uh, audience and presentation group that focuses on really historical methodology. And so we're gonna use the quantitative data on all 102 technology investing firms during the incubation period. Uh, here, uh, Sojin, thank you for all of your hard work here in terms of gathering rich data on the internal R&D of bionic, based on bionic prosthetic patents, clinical trials, as well as external sourcing through acquisitions and alliances. And so we're also able to then keep track of the prior history and that define firms based on whether they were incumbents in the conventional prosthetics, established firms from other industries or startups. And then of course, we also examine their value capture strategy in terms of did they enter in the actual product, products of bionic prosthetics? Were they acquired? Did they enter in component features? Or did they engage in markets for technology in terms of licensing and sales of patterns? In terms of the historical analysis, we gather rich firm histories on 15 historically significant technology investing firms, um, making sure that there is distribution across all of these three categories of firms. And Sojin again spent hours of hours of effort, including going to conferences. Uh, by getting this data from trade magazines, publications, news articles, uh, and any and all materials that she could uh, unearth. So here we're able to then look at the technology before the, uh, the knowledge before the technological investments, their focus on knowledge building during this incubation period, and then of course, the race in which they captured value. So what are the key findings? First off, we're going to divide it into two types, right? Who developed the technological base and then who captured value in what mechanism? So one of the things that you'll see at a very high level is diverse types of firms contributed to the development of the knowledge base and they engaged in various modes of knowledge development. In terms of who captured the value, you see all three types of value capture occurring. And in fact, if you were to look at in the terms of commercialization, it's very clear that it's the incumbents in this industry that end up doing most of the commercialization as opposed to other industries on radical technologies where we see that entrance, particularly diversifying entrance, Maka, your dissertation uh, work on uh, ag biotechnology establishes diversifying entrance as the predominant commercializer. But here we see it's incumbents, then startups, and in fact, established firms from other industries don't do much. So who developed the technological base? Uh, interestingly enough, it is established firms in other industries that really enter well before, you know, so 1970s when you see that. And you'll notice through this graph, 
that it's largely established firms from other industries, not surprisingly, because bionics and the new base principles are actually relevant across a multiple slew of industries, including manufacturing and automobiles. Uh, so the number of new technology investing firms are largely established firms from other industries. You'll see that 20 of the conventional prosthetic manufacturers enter in this industry too, as do startups largely hailing from academic uh, 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 in, uh, labs. So in terms of what do they do in terms of capturing value, you'll notice that incumbents actually, I'm gonna just uh, quickly very go, go through this. Incumbents end up, so among the incumbents, most of them enter in the system level as opposed to the component level. Some of them do get acquired and licensed. Startups, on the other hand, most of them enter the component level, uh, half and half, but you end up seeing them being acquired very quickly after. Established firms from other industries do not enter the bionic prosthetics industry. And most of them that do, do largely enter at the component level or license their technology or end up just having uh, be conduits of spillovers where other firms are building on their knowledge rather than them actively resurfacing their knowledge towards bionic prosthetics it itself. So uh, the historical analysis reveals um, uh, processes that are very consistent with what I just showed you. The technology, no the knowledge before technology entry resides both in terms of the new technology as in the new principles around neuroscience and uh, computer science and electrical engineering. Most of that actually comes from startups or established firms from other industries. The old technology, not surprisingly, is from the incumbents themselves. The knowledge building, thank you, um, I'm gonna wrap up in just a second. The knowledge building you'll notice is where the incumbents really take charge because there's an investment by an internal development by all firms, but it's the incumbents that end up integrating both old and new technology and engage in the convergence of these two technologies. Startups end up providing new technology to the integrator and established firms from other industries are sources of knowledge spillover. So not surprisingly, the incumbents end up producing full-on bionic limbs, whereas startups and uh, uh, established firms in other industries end up being more in the markets for technology or corporate control. So what have we learned? At the industry and technology level, what Sojin, Brent, and I learned from doing this exercise is that radical technologies often represent co-evolution of old and new technology. The system went wider and deeper. So we challenge this narrative of obsolescence and substitution due to definitional circularity. Radical technologies also require significant attention to the integrator role. And here it's about making sure that knowledge that's dispersed across multiple industries and actors come together. This is not a plug and play. In fact, there is an attention to trade-offs and a constant effort at reconfiguring uh, both old and new principles. Uh, at the firm level, what we've learned is that definition of radical technology is based on its nature rather than uh, economic effect allows us to study the who are the contributors 
to the technological base. Incumbent capabilities aren't always rendered obsolete. Commercialization focus of incumbent and, uh, you know, when you focus on it in post-commercialization dynamics, masks important incubation period entry and interaction. And who enters is not random, but determined by their prior capabilities and focus on investment. And in a homage to Steve Klepper, what we're finding is that it's not just diversifying entrants, but incumbents that can also have a dominance by birthright because they're better positioned uh, for commercialization given capabilities and strategic intent. On the other hand, this is not an against, it's very much a with. So you see startups capturing value through alternative modes, though established firms from other industries tend to focus on their own value chains and alternative markets and they fa factor in as knowledge spillover mechanisms. Thank you so much. And that's all I have. Thank you, Rashri. We much appreciate your working paper. That is wonderful. Um, now let's have uh, the discussant of the first paper. Good, excellent. Well, thank you very much um, for the uh, for the presentation, for letting me uh, discuss this paper um, by Sojin, Rashri, and Brent. Um, now, I know it's customary to you know, revise and, and summarize the paper, but I'll let the authors do that. And uh, in particular, um, I'll quote from the abstract what this paper is about. It says, our study examines how radical technological systems are created by economic actors that are heterogeneous in both their prior history and their experimentation efforts and the implications for their value capture strategies. That's quite a lot. Right. Um, effectively, um, you know, these are all important words. These are all words that are sort of signifiers for something that's fairly unique about this uh, about this paper. However, it's almost five papers in one. So, so Jin, I think you have this dissertation and a couple of others coming up um, on on that subject. So it's very very nice. It, uh, you do provide awesome depth um, on the industry and uh, you know on the on the context and I think everyone who reads this paper will learn something from it but it's also a lot to uh, to take in and so therefore what I'm going to give is a partial view how I read the paper what I took from the paper and I'm going to make some suggestions based on that um, now looking at it at the industry level, um, and that's kind of the, the first part of your uh, paper, um, is asking what really are radical innovations? And you point out that there's two ways of looking at this. There's a market-based view and there's a technology-based view. And depending on whether the existing product becomes obsolete or not, um, i.e. if you make no sales anymore um, or no significant sales, then uh, from a market-based point of view, the innovation was radical. Um, if, as uh, you uh, quoted, Rashri, if the technology um, sort of has a new base principle, then we talk about a radical innovation from the technology's point of view. So thinking about the, the market-based view, um, the critique that you give is that it's sort of backward looking and you only see by revealed preferences what was radical. So you know, I was thinking about music this morning and a new metal, for example, was a very successful, um, a successful uh, uh, musical genre um, that more or less obliterated regular metal, uh, but really it wasn't radical, right? It was basically just a, a, a rehash of what was already out there. 
the technology-based view um, is more prospective. Um, and there basically it's radical if a new base principle is used. So here again, a musical genre called mashup, um, mix songs and genres that already existed within songs and across songs. But chances are you've never heard of that kind of music because it was it, it remained a niche kind of uh, a niche kind of music. So you've got sort of got type one and type two eras, if you wish, um, when you talk about uh, radicalness from a market or a technology based view. So the authors of this paper use the technological view to study the bionic prosthetics industry and you show that radicalness can come gradually um, to, a, to a large extent also based on what was already out there. And obsolescence of the incumbent technology is not necessary to come up with a radical innovation. So some thoughts on the, on the industry view. So how would we think, and, and clearly, you know, this is an ecosystem, uh, an ecosystem PDW. So how would we think about the market-based view for system technologies? So in other words, can components even be radical in that market-based view, given that we're really taking a, a product level view? Um, so we would, we would think of the entire ecosystem being radical or not, but individual components are tough to be defined as radical. Second, I was wondering if there's actually value. So I, I call this the answer of style matrix of market and, uh, and product or marketing technology. Is there value in developing that a little bit further? Um, would, for example, these different quadrants that you find yourself in call for different strategies? And especially I'm interested, I, I would be interested in these sort of um, top left and bottom right ones where um, you either have one that uh, um, you know, is technologically not that new, but potentially can make big inroads in the market or the other way around. Kind of flipping the, the, the first bullet point, um, I'd be interested in uh, seeing and learning when a technological system becomes radical from a tech point of view. So what, what was it that made cell phones, for example, radical? So clearly there's a transmission technology that was unlike what we had before. Is it the portability of the end product that we can um, that we can carry it around or we can have it in our car? Or was it a killer app such as text messaging in, in Europe, for example, that really made it tech radical? So given that we're talking about a system of products, um, we, we, we also have to think about what, what is it that then defines the radicalness on the, on the tech level. Now on the firm story, um, I, kind of paraphrase the question as, or the research question as, how do firms move in a technological system that evolves, right? And so you've got firm history that has a role to play in how firms acquire knowledge about that new, uh, about that new technology. And knowledge acquisition affects the type and the mode by which they try to va capture value in that, uh, in that new industry, in that new, uh, for that new technology. So, um, you looked at incumbent startups. Um, in the paper, you used the, the term spillover firm, which I liked a lot, uh, which is basically um, other established players in a different industry. Um, the modes of knowledge acquisition are internal alliance and by acquisition, um, and value capture can happen either by entering with your own end products, by licensing out your part of the technology or by getting acquired by established firms. So 
What you do in the paper is you look at firm history affecting knowledge acquisition or type of firm, if you wish, um, affecting knowledge acquisition and firm history affecting the mode of value capture. So what I think is really nice is that we learn about the full canvas of options, right? For both knowledge acquisition and for value capture, rather than just as what say 80% of papers do, drivers of one of these modes, right? So it's really nice that you have these different, these, these different exit paths or these different acquisition paths in one paper um, and you, you measure them all. I think that's really an excellent, a super nice feature of, uh, of that paper. Um, so some thoughts. Um, I'm wondering how much the firm's chosen strategy affects value capture and how much its history, i.e. its type. So if you, you know, if you were to think about this in, in a regression framework, um, I would be suggesting a mediation, uh, a mediation effect, because for example, a spillover firm could choose an alliance rather than internal or alliance rather than acquisition. And that might condition its subsequent modes of uh, value capture, right? Or it could really be the spillover firm having something in its, in its very makeup that will then determine uh, the, mode of, uh, the mode of value capture. Um, second, um, what do these combined choices of value capture strategies? So in other words, if we take all the firms in the industry um, and how they all choose to capture, uh, capture value in this industry, what do they mean for the evolution of the system? So in some sense, it's cycling back to the industry part. Um, so if there's a lot of acquisition, would we expect a very concentrated market, for example, that might have impact on, uh, on the future development? If there's a lot of licensing, will the structure of the industry be more of a value network of an ecosystem? Thirdly, um, so here you clearly took a very strong view on the, on the technology-based view, but can the market-based view also add to our insights about these value capture uh, strategies? So those were be, uh, would be three thoughts on, the, uh, on, on that part. So just to sum up, um, I think it's great stuff. You know, I'm trained many, many years ago as, a, as an IO economist. So I really love the, the, the detail and in industry that uh, you gave. I love the industry, I love the detail, and I love the perspective on the technology part, on the technology-based view. It's a very rich paper. So trimming is going to be a challenge. Um, you know, but who wouldn't want to read a book on the bionic prosthetics industry? So, so Jin, um, I think you, as I said, you're busy for the next couple of years if you remain interested in that industry. Um, and I think you could bring the two levels of industry and firm together a bit more. And I mean that both empirically, um, but also conceptually. I think there's a lot to be, uh, to be said about the way that firms behave and how that then affects the way that the industry evolves over time. And I guess given that you know, you're going to be working on that, I really look forward to seeing future iterations. Um, and I think as you have to do, you have to show a bionic, a bionic hand. Thank you very much for letting me read this paper and speak about it. Thank you. Thank you, Toby. That was wonderful. Uh, in the interest of time, we will move swiftly to the second paper and Mary will be presenting. And I have seen uh, questions coming in, wonderful. Um, I am collecting them and we will uh, work on them together uh, at the end of uh, the four presentations. Go ahead, Mary. 
Excellent. Uh, so thank you so much to the organizers for inviting me and to all of you for being here. Rajshree and Tobias, that was a perfect setup for what I'm going to talk about in that this is also a historic study where we look back on the entire history of an industry. And Tobias, you're clearly a hardcore uh, music fan. So I'm looking forward to your, your thoughts on this. Uh, this is a paper that's part of a large project that Andrew Nelson, Cal and Anthony and I have been working on for a while on the music synthesizer industry. Uh, and so let me share with you, I will caveat this is a working paper. So uh, thoughts and chats and comments are, are much appreciated. So in our theories of technological evolution, we typically think about technology as marching forward. We, you know, we move to bionic uh, uh, kinds of, of appendages. Uh, and so things get faster, they get lighter, they get cheaper. Uh, and that kind of a notion leads us as we look at generations of technology to typically think about technology, new technology in particular, as substituting for old technology. So even my own work originally back on the typesetter industry, I always have to show that typesetter slide as many times as possible because it was hand gathered data that took me many years of my life. So I've now amortized it yet one more time. Uh, so, uh, you know, we see different generations of typesetters pretty much completely substituting for others or more recently, Susan Cohen and I have a paper on uh, cameras looking at the substitution of digital for analog. So this is a sort of standard notion, right? And yet we see examples where that's not true. And more recently, there's been some interesting work in particular by Ryan Raffaelli, who we're gonna hear from in a moment, um, looking at reemergence. But even before that, you know, Ron Adner and Dad Snow had this very nice paper saying, well, the new technology doesn't always completely substitute. Sometimes there are these niches where the old technology can live. So pagers continue to exist for a long time, you know, in a small niche. And then, of course, Ryan's uh, fabulous work looking at the reemergence of old mechanical technology in the Swiss watch industry, um, I think is probably the, the first and most extensive look at this other phenomenon that we're going to look at today, which is the reemergence of an old technology that has pretty much disappeared. So why do we need another study? Ryan already did a study, right? So I would argue the phenomenon that we're looking at as we were you know, playing around with the massive amounts of data, which I'll give you a hint at in a moment, uh, that surprised us is you know, in the case of what Ryan observes, uh, we see reemergence of mechanical watches by redefinition of really what a watch is, right? And so rather than focusing on telling time, uh, mechanical watches become this status symbol. They're, they're very much luxury. Uh, in contrast with music synthesizers, what we're going to see is that they continue to be used by the same kinds of artists for the same thing. So the phenomenon that we're going to be looking at is uh, the substitution effects of um, you know, analog moves to digital, as we see here. And this looks like a typical industry, right? This could be my uh, you know, typesetter or camera slide. Um, so thus far, we think we're in a normal situation. Um, and then we have the puzzle. What we see is this reemergence of the red bar, which is analog synthesizers starting in the 90s and really picking up in the last decade. Um, and so what's going on here? 
The yellow bar, which we'll talk about a little bit uh, later, is an attempt by producers to emulate the sound of an analog synthesizer in a digital synthesizer through some technology called analog modeling. So we also see that growing. And that's actually going to end up being an important driver, we argue, for why the red line also starts to go up. So, so if this is the puzzle, then you know what, what's the answer? How do we study this? So our question, how and why does a legacy technology reemerge with the same meaning for the same market segment, I think does still remain unanswered. Um, and so we have very similar to what Rajshree was just talking about, a combination of quantitative and in our case, qualitative historical data on the entire evolution really of an industry. So for those of you who showed up at this seminar thinking that we're gonna talk about industry emergence as opposed to re-emergence, I would guide you to our first paper out of this project, which came out in Strategy Science in 2016, which looked at the very early years of this industry. Uh, this paper continues all the way through 2019. And our primary data that we're gonna be using in this paper comes from Keyboard Magazine. Uh, Andrew Nelson got a, uh, an awesome grant from the Kauffman Foundation. So he basically spent, I don't know how many hours on eBay buying old issues of Keyboard Magazine. And I think he has the only collection, the only complete collection of keyboard in the world uh, sitting in his house. Um, so we look at the advertisements over this entire time in the January and July issues, and we check to make sure those were representative um, to get the kind of projections of manufacturers and then the perspective of musicians. And these are the keyboard players that we're looking at in the interviews, not necessarily the people singing. Um, this magazine had interviews over time, talking to the keyboard players about why did you use this instrument versus that? What do you look for? You know, all, all sorts of things about how they view their role in a band um, and, and what the keyboard does. In addition to that, We've gone and gathered uh, through a variety of sources, a complete set of data on all of the products introduced globally, uh, as well as firm level data and then industry level data. Um, if you run into Andrew Nelson sometime at a, um, at a conference, ask him about the uh, synthesizer that he literally made at Moogfest a couple of years ago. Um, so we've been going to industry conferences and basically getting a lot of information about the industry. Uh, so we've coded in this paper the data that you're going to see. I mean, you already saw some of the data on products introduced over time. Uh, primarily, we're going to be looking at the results of our coding of the ad and the interview data, though. Um, so this is just an example of some of the ads to make you all jealous because we get to spend our research time digging through these magazines uh, and playing around with all sorts of, of fun ads. Um, in order for you to understand where we're going to go in terms of looking at why analog reemerges, it's important to know a little bit about the difference between what an analog and a digital synthesizer look like and how they work. So they're using obviously different technologies for generating sound, one voltage, one digital. Um, but the nature of the sound, the actual way it sounds is very different. So there are a set of words used to describe the analog sound fat, warm, uh, and if we had more time and we weren't uh, over an internet connection, 
I would, you know, play some videos for you or pull out a couple of synthesizers and give you a quick demo. Um, but you really hear the difference, right? It's this deep, warm sound as opposed to kind of a sparkling, clear sound that people talk about with digital synthesizers. Another big difference is that the analog synthesizers, the synthesis, the keyboard player uses knobs on the machine in order to create different sounds. And so there's this interface that is covered in knobs and it's a very tactile experience to create these sounds and often the machine has no memory. So it's not that, oh, I know there's this great sound that I like to use and I you know, make it come back all the time. Every time they you know, are, are recreating in some sense, as opposed to the digital synthesizer where there's a menu and display and you sit and you go through a, a menu of preset sounds that the manufacturer has come, has come up with. And you can create your own sounds, but it's a very uh, um, you know, programming digital kind of experience. And then finally, the analog synthesizers had all sorts of problems in terms of being unstable with tuning and such, whereas digital synthesizers were much better in terms of that. So with that as background, then let's think about what's happening in this industry. So what are our findings? So inspired by our inaugural poet, I have some alliteration here. We have a seemingly standard substitution story, right? That we saw earlier of you know digital makes analog pretty much go away the the exception here is that the digital users are continuing to use their analog machines and in fact there emerges this almost buyer's regret of frustration with what the digital machines are giving them and a desire to go back to some of the things they had before so we have chick korea talking about but first, the novelty of the DX7, which is a digital machine, was attractive, right? It was sonically attractive, but I missed the warmth of the analog synths, you know? And then who decided we don't need the knobs on our synths? Why wasn't I consulted? And then in addition to the features, the things those features can afford in terms of control, as I was talking about, of the sound creation, and in particular, the ability to create distinct sounds was missed. So we have Rick Wakeman talking about keyboard players today can't become identifiable because there's pre-programmed synths. With my old Moog, I could get sounds that other people never got. So the producers hear this and they're not, you know, ignoring their customers, right? So they say, we can, we can respond to that with our digital synths. So we'll put, you want knobs? We'll give you knobs. So we see the percentage of digital synths that have knobs, you know, going up, right? You want analog sounds? Well, they create a technology I alluded to earlier called analog modeling, which does a better job than, uh, you know, than the typical digital sound of sounding a little bit more like an analog synth. And they project that in their advertisement. So this is an ad for a digital synth, but they're saying we challenge you to find a better sounding warmer synth and warm to these people means analog. So we looked across time at all of the ads for digital synthesizers and coded them as to whether they had an analog frame like the one that we just saw or digital. And so you see this change over time of the producers trying to tell keyboard players, oh, our digital synth is really like an analog synth. You can have the best of all worlds, right? And they go one step further, and this is going to be an important part of the story in terms of what happens with the users and the reemergence re of analog, they make these what we would argue are inauthentic authenticity claims. 
So the cue is a digital machine and that, yet their ad says if it sounds really, really analog, if you're talking cue, you want classic analog sounds by a prophecy, which is a digital machine. And so we see 42% of the ads for these analog, analog modeling sims making these inauthentic authenticity claims. So the sort of spillback of that, the kind of effect in terms of the users is a phenomenon we call authenticity crystallizing. And so there's been some talk in the authenticity literature of this phenomenon. Oliver Hall in particular has a really nice paper about baseball stadiums where he argues that when producers do things that make them seem inauthentic, there's actually increased demand for real authenticity. Um, and so here, the response is they actually demand real analog. So in our interviews, we see increasing amounts of uh, users, keyboard players talking about you know, we want a vintage keyboard. The sound is so much better. Um, and then, you know, bugs become features, right? They take and reinterpret what used to be considered shortcomings of analog. They go out of tune, and those now become signals of authenticity. And there's something about a tangle of cables hanging there. What the hell is making that? Why is it making that sound, right? They're unpredictable, and that becomes a desired feature. And so then we finally have our final phase. Um, and this is, you know, Rajri and I have a paper on industry, a book chapter we did a while ago on industry evolution and how, you know, there are these sort of standard patterns. And, you know, this is yet another example. If we look at the red line, this is a number of firms producing analog synth synthesizers. You know, if you stopped around 1987, you'd think you had a typical great industry. You know, analog goes up and down, substituted for by firms that are making, uh, that are making digital. Um, but then what we see, of course, on the second half, and this parallels the product data that I showed you at the beginning, we see the red line going up in terms of the number of firms that are making analog since goes up. And we also see if you're doing digital, the green line that you're doing a digital that has analog modeling. And in fact, the digital synth or the analog synths that are being introduced um, are ones that have what we're calling here vintage analog features. So, you know, not to get into the weeds of this, but I mentioned how a lot of the analog machines didn't have memory, so that you're forced to recreate the sound each time, right? So in the 70s, that's what they looked like. And then, you know, sometimes people want to save their sound. And so in the 80s, producers started putting some mem more memory into analog synths. And then we see in the reemergence, they actually take that away. And then polyphony, being able to play more than one note at a time, actually goes up and comes back down because a monophonic machine is more like a solo instrument, like an oboe, like I play, where you make one note at a time. Uh, and then you see in ads of the players, the, this, you know, this is a player that is making just analog machines, they're emphasizing the synth has no memory. Each parameter in that tiny analog uh, you know, thing adds so much character. You're forced to be creative. No reliance on presets. You know, each, time, each time you make a sound, you're original, right? So. Uh, so it's, it's a, really a back to the future. And then this is pictures of the models that are being introduced now. And even if you look at them, you see and some of the original manufacturers come back. Moog and Sequential Circuits in particular have been, have been quite successful. And they're coming out with new versions of their old machines. Korg that isn't listed here actually made a big deal about we rehired the engineers that made the 1978 machine. The original people are doing it. So what do we learn from this? So we're extending this conversation on reemergence that I think Ryan really got going. And what we see is reemergence without redefinition of the category. 
And the process is very different. It's very user-driven as opposed to what Ryan saw with watches that was very purposeful and producer-driven. Um, and then finally, I think it's important as we look at these evolutionary stories to think of generations, not necessarily as straight substitutes, but sometimes as complements. We also think about some of the boundary conditions because an obvious question, I haven't been looking at the chat, but I'm sure many of you are thinking, well, when does this apply, right? Obviously not always. And so we think that the importance of affordances, what the technology allows you to do, things like the, you know, playing around with the knobs and creating sounds and feeling distinctive um, is an important factor. Uh, and then authenticity um, is, is important. So uh, this is a phenomenon. I showed you my typesetter slide earlier. There's actually been a reemergence of old hot metal typesetting. Uh, and, you know, obviously I'm sure many of you know about Polaroid cameras coming back and vinyl discs and in fact typewriters. Um, and you know, I'll end by saying there was a great junky Netflix movie over the holidays, Home for Christmas, where uh, one of the people was talking about typing on an actual typewriter. Um, and so they, uh, oh, I, had the, I had the little quote to tell you, you know, oh, here we go. They said, it feels like the stuff I write has more substance when I type it on a typewriter. Um, so with that in mind, um, we're done and it's all yours, Ryan. Thank you, Mary. Ryan will be the discussant uh, on this paper. And Mary, you can check out the chats. Lots of interesting discussions. We will go over them um, at the end of the fourth presentation. Go ahead, Ryan. Hold on a second. Let me try to log back out and log back in. Oh, maybe you. We see your screen. You can. All right, we see you well. We see okay, you let's see if uh, we've got we've got me back. <clears throat> Ryan, we can both see and hear your screen. Hear you and see your screen. So everything seems to be fine on our end. Oh, now he is frozen. You know, you love technology because it enables us to go worldwide and expect, and we only study technology, right? And of course, technology will fail when you most need it to. We're seeing your screen again, Ryan. Ryan is re-emerging. <laughs> Indeed. How's that? I think I think I'm finally back now. Uh, sorry about the crash on Zoom. Uh, as many of you know, it's great to follow Mary, uh, who taught me much of what I know. So uh, let me dig into uh, this paper. First of all, um, what I'll say is uh, there's just a lot to like about this paper. Um, first of all, I, I think what's exciting for me is uh, Mary and I have had several conversations that it, this is what we see as an extension of this growing body of literature on technology reemergence. You know, um, 
again, so much of this prevailing literature has been about how old technologies uh, get displaced. And in their paper, they talk about how these technologies go gently into this good night. My work in the watch industry, you know, they were predicting at that point, they said, we now bid farewell to these master craftsmen, their time has come and gone. And, you know, you know, this is sort of at the heart of this paper. It's really, I think, opening up the lens on, well, what are the conditions and what can we think about in terms of these reemergent uh, technologies? And they do it with such care. Uh, and I think the key thing here is, is that what you see, and you can see from Mary's paper, the data is not only rich, but it's really fun to read. I mean, so if you look at uh, what's in this, all these different components, I mean, there's such a craft that's come together on this paper. I mean, it's qualitative research at its best. Uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes in the paper, I mean, who doesn't love a paper where you get to hear about Bon Jovi's keyboard technician, right? So if you like music, you gotta read this, even if you don't care about technology reemergence. But the, the, the core of this is that you can see how this industry is evolving over time, why it's evolving. And importantly, it's asking, I think, a set of questions about, uh, really challenging some of these prevailing views. And it gives you deep down into the depths of this specific industry. And I think what's also key to this, particularly around these types of studies is that they're longitudinal in nature, right? So they're not just giving you a couple dates, but this is part of this large program that uh, Mary, uh, Andrew and Callan have been a part of. And you can see it coming out specifically um, here. So um, with that, there's a couple questions that I think I'll, I'll raise for, for this paper, but more generally for those of you that are interested in this phenomena. And for this particular paper, you know, it starts out largely about framing the paper around is, is technology reemergence possible? And I think there's sort of this um, really sort of tension right now uh, for those of us that are interested in this area is really trying to answer the question for some folks, is it possible? And then there's another set of questions I think around, well, what are the pathways that get you there? And so, you know, I, I, I think about the work that Mary mentioned that I was doing on the watch industry. At, you know, my big challenge with that work was trying to figure out how do we pull apart these different legacy trajectories. And the challenge really there was trying to pick apart, okay, if we know that we have these dominant designs and we know that these cycles exist, what does it look like um, where you can move from sort of a retire or a retreat that Mary talked about? And then I, I sort of look at this notion of reemergence around redefinition. But to me, what's exciting about this particular paper is, is it says, wait a minute, maybe redefinition isn't the only way towards reemergence. So if I, if I sort of look at where this paper hopefully begins to really carve out, I think a very important uh, place in the literature is, is that it's suggesting that maybe redefinition isn't the only one. And so this notion of looking at these pathways, I'm hoping spurs uh, those of us that are fascinated with, with these future research questions. And they begin to do, I think a big piece of this, a big favor to us where they say, wait a minute, uh, you guys may have, or Ryan, you may have seen redefinition, but that's not always the case. And that's pretty exciting because now that starts to tell that, wait a minute, there's a lot going on here that gets us to maybe what is this outcome that's reemergence. A couple other questions that I'll, I'll raise with this paper that I think are important. And that is, you know, uh, Mary shows us these three different phases that push the industry and she taps into this notion of authenticity or user driven. To me, this paper, I think where it will really start to see itself expand is looking at what are the core mechanisms that move not only within, but also across these different phases. That to me is really the fertile ground for all of us that are trying to figure out these 
these legacy trajectories. What are the things that we hold on to that can actually see become the motors uh, for reemergence? The second thing that I think is core to those of us that are studying this is really reemergent technologies. And you heard Mary talk about it. What's so fascinating about this study is, is that you see musicians and a musician myself, you know, I often would be, you see this in bands and others, uh, particularly here, you know, over time, what you begin to realize is these complements, many people actually had both these, right? They had the, now they have the analog, they've got their B3 Hammond right next to their digital synth and they're going, this is great. Or they might want one of these hybrids that sits next to it. So I think this is an important next step for us that are trying to understand legacy technologies is really beginning to figure out well, under what conditions maybe are there substitutes, complements, or both? And I think we're both kind of trying to make sense of this, looking at this through qualitatively and going, wait a minute, these are things that are there. And so that to me is one area where I think we can see also downstream work. The second thing that this paper got me thinking a little bit about, so for those of you that are familiar with uh, you know, Nate Fur and Dan Snow's work on intergenerational hybrids, they often talk about this notion of spillovers and spillbacks, and they, and, and they talk about this idea of like, you know, you can capitalize on the knowledge of the past and maybe bring it forward, and they also look at these unique variants where you had like sailing ships that had, you know, steam engines in the middle or uh, a company I was looking at created slide rules that then put calculators in them. And it's these weird hybrids that exist. But here you have with this paper, this a very different type of a, a hybrid. And it's a hybrid, actually a backward generation hybridicity that I think is something we really haven't talked about. And in fact, it might actually be another type of era of ferment in these technology cycles. We often think about eras of ferment, really thinking about the discontinuous technology, then you've got a bunch of variants come out and then eventually a dominant design. But there might be another era of ferment that is specific to those legacy trajectories. And this paper particularly gives us insight into that because you see them actually putting the knobs and all the other things back onto even digital variants. And that is really fascinating to me because I think it's uh, hits at the notion that the core of the product itself um, may be able to pull things from the past, even if the core technology might be different. And so you have the core versus the subsystems working together around future versus past. And they sort of tap into that. And then the last thing that I'll say around this is that for future research, if those are interested in this, to me, what's fascinating is, you know, this paper, I think the watches, we've looked at vinyl records, all these others, there are sort of these extreme cases of old technologies. But the reality is, is that we know managers today, because technology cycles are having to move much more quickly, are facing much more contemporary examples. So now we kind of have in our head that this might be possible. I think the big question for us is that if you're a manager trying to figure out you've got multiple S curves in your organization, at what point do you hold on? At what point do you let go of these variants? And how do you actually use when you've got these multiple S curves? At some point, you know, you might park them. Uh, Corning is a great example. I just finished a study looking at them where they park technologies for many years and then they pick them back up later and they reactivate them in different ways. In my sense is this is probably closer to the contemporary example of how uh, many firms and managers are trying to figure out is that they, they build up a set of capabilities or new nascent technologies and then they sort of set them aside and then it becomes, okay, can we re-emerge them and reconceptualize them in new ways? So again, thank you for letting me uh, review this paper and just uh, sort of very exciting that we have, I have, I feel like I'm not a lone wolf in this world <laughs> anymore. And it's great to have some folks in there um, and uh, looking forward to hearing comments 
uh, for the rest of the papers. Thanks again. Thank you, Ryan. Yes, the chat room is full of music discussion, full of spirit. It's so wonderful. The third paper will be presented by Maka. Maka, go ahead. Hey, hello everyone. Uh, it's such a great pleasure to be here today and just looking at all your little faces and your little names on uh, Zoom. I was so thrilled to know that we were able to build the community uh, regardless of the circumstances. It's very much appreciated what Gwen, Tim, Paolo, everybody in the SDR division have been doing these days. Uh, so I'm very pleased uh, today to present a work that uh, Anavir Sherman and I at University of North Carolina have been working on for the past couple of years about entry strategies of firms into the drone industry. And the particular paper that I'll present today is titled Zooming In or Zooming Out, Entrance Product Portfolios in the Nascent Drone Industry. Uh, with the idea that when you look at like different varieties of like entry strategy in nascent industry, we have a very good understanding of, well, when is it that firms enter an industry, what condition leads to their entry, maybe what are their technological choices, but what of one of the aspects of the entry strategy that has been less studied is that what customer segments these new entrants focus on with this backdrop that in a nascent industry, very often demand uncertainty and heterogeneity actually makes this choice very complicated in the sense that at early stages, like it may not be clear which customer segments will find the product valuable, what are customers' price and functional preferences. And, uh, and going back to the work that Eric Von Hippel, uh, Christensen, and Rosenberg have done, without direct interaction of customers with these novel products, maybe not customers themselves know this. But gradually, as new customers get attracted to new products, it could be that some sub-segments and sub-markets start to exist and exist, and then this entry choice for firms with respect to which customer segments to focus really become pertinent. And here, let me walk you through one example from the empirical context of our paper, and that is the commercial drone industry. Many of us are familiar with commercial photography and videography. Movies that we're watching these days are amazing of video visual effects and those are thanks to drones. But there are other very important segments with economic implications and very large market share that are now popping up along the lines of, of drones that are being used for long distance surveying. If you have a really long railroad pipe, if you want to map a large area, you can use drones to do that. In parallel, if you want to really like inspect bridges, hard to reach areas, turbine, roofs, and etc., you can use drones for short distance inspection. Precision agriculture is becoming a very, very important area for drones in that you can not only use them to spray the field, but also get a sense of how the vegetation develops. And many of us have heard the stories of prime air as a mode to deliver products uh, that we purchase. So now let's consider this, let's loop this back to the question that I raised earlier. Here. An entrant into this new industry will face all of these new applications that have been envisioned for a drone, 
Customers in each of them will have different preferences for what they expect to see in the drone that they get because the task that they require that drone to really deliver for them is contingent on the drone having the technical capabilities and at least the minimum functional threshold that they require for that. So from a producer perspective, from an entrant perspective, like they will have to decide like how to allocate their product portfolio across these markets. And the way that we characterize this question in our paper is through characterizing a firm's product portfolio and this choice faced by entrants through two dimensions of portfolio usage breadth and portfolio coherence. Uh, we define usage breadth as the extent to which a firm's product portfolio targets different customer segments. So if we go back, let's say, to five imaginary customer segments, one uh, range of the spectrum could be a firm whose portfolio of products are only applicable and used in one market. And the other range could be like high breadth, meaning that these products are targeted to perhaps all of these. But product portfolios of companies do not consist of just one product. It could be that there are multiple products. And in that sense, another dimension for this portfolio becomes pertinent and that's coherence. The extent to which multiple products between these portfolios then sort of maintain what breadth used to look like, like the extent to which they overlap. So let's look at how this like manifests for a firm with two products. If we have low breadth, high coherence, we really have like two products in a portfolio, both of them representing uh, low breath. If we have high breath, high coherence, again, like both of the products in the portfolio have that like multiple customer segments targeted, but they mirror each other. The other extreme could be when you have high breath and low coherence, meaning that well, products collectively map to a large number of customer segments, but each of them are sort of specialized, dedicated to a certain number. So what we're going to do in this paper is to answer the question of like, are there antecedents that can guide us into knowing like how firms allocate their products in these three quadrants that I showed you with respect to the product uh, portfolio composition. And as I've already alluded to, the empirical context as the drone manufacturing industry. To give you a preview of where we're going with the paper, our key finding is that given the complications of really optimizing what are the costs and benefits of this, these product portfolio choices in a nascent industry, firms very often revert back to their pre-entry experiences and in particular their use experience. And that leads them into that quadrant one that I showed you when usage breadth is low and product coherence in the portfolio is high. So in some ways building on like uh, the previous presentation, Mary has been talking about how users help re-emergence of an industry. Here we're having a case that users are helping sort of diffusion of ideas and adaptation of certain products at dissemination in an industry. Uh, we'll be also looking at how this relationship intensifies if those users are diversifying entrants or if their business models are sort of paired business models.
So let me guide you through our hypothesis. Uh, the idea here is that before firms enter an industry, before they get to the choice of thinking about their product portfolio, very often they are heterogeneous with respect to experience that they have accumulated. The literature has looked at this from the perspective of maybe the dichotomy of startups versus diversifying entrants or founder level experiences of startups, whether they are academics, users, or employee spin-outs. And one category of these experiences is pre-entry use and that before that point of entry, was that like possible for the core founding team of a company or its prior industry of activity to have been in an area to accumulate knowledge and be aware of how this new product could be used. For example, I've already showed you some of the applications of drone. Now here, if a farmer decides to enter the drone industry, knowing that drones can be applicable in the agriculture setting, that farmer is one of the users that we code. Whereas if a robotics engineer sort of come in, they are no longer users in the sense of not mapping into any of the activities. So that's sort of the mindset that I would like you to take. Now, uh, with our first hypothesis, we'll link this to low breath, high coherence uh, portfolio with the idea that when one, once these users enter an industry, they very often have a demand-oriented cognitive frame. From their perspective, a drone is not a flying robot. It's a flying crop sprayer. It's a flying camera. So as they think about all the options available to them, you may not be even considering all the other customer segments that are available, even if those customers or more customer segments are more economically viable or larger. So that's how they narrow their choices. And then on top of that, even that they've already been embedded in the knowledge context of a particular use area, they have the advantage of being able to accumulate more demand knowledge so that they know, hey, what is it that that particular customer segments require? And then they can leverage that knowledge, that demand knowledge into enabling them to develop new technologies, technological specification to then deliver that promise, that required specification. So here we have like sort of these two parallel mechanisms operating of in favor of our hypothesis. Now, on top of this one hypothesis, I'm here focusing on one of the quadrants and that uh, two by two that I showed you, but empirically I'll show you more. We have two hypo uh, two moderating variables as well. Like when you have a diversifying entrant or you, when you have firms that pair the business model of selling a product, selling a drone, and at the same time offering a service using the drones that they have, this narrowing of their view into a particular set of customer segments intensifies so we see more of it. Now, let's get to the data and sample. This is the commercial drone manufacturing industry. These things have been around for decades and decades. I think many of us have played with radio controlled planes as kids, but it's really after 2012 that we see an explosion, I would say, in their commercial applications. And that's where we focus. 
but a particular emphasis on a regulation that was passed in 2012 that requires anyone who wants to fly a drone to get permission from FAA. Here you see like how what one of these like exemptions look like. So what Anavir and I have done is to look at these uh, 600 plus documents, extract information from them, and then look at the drone that was listed on each of these exemptions and see who their drone manufacturer is. This led us to 431 drone models manufactured by 230 manufacturers. We then like continue this to map our variables of interest do we have diversifying entrants, use experience, paired business model? And then we continue on another information that's available on these exemptions, and that's how customers wanted to use these drones. What is the authorized use? We again follow them, map them into the five categories that I showed you. So this led us to having breadth and coherence is too valuable as two variables, we also confirm like some of our coding with technical specifications that we could find for many of these drones. A number of control variables and the results that we have, I'm going to here focus on the joint estimation of brand breadth and coherence in a bivariate model. We have like a number of other robustness checks that you can see. What we have is that use experience is positively related to breadth and same like weekly positive related to coherence, which really shows itself when we look at the marginal probabilities of each of those quadrants, really like H1, H2, and H3, like all of them support it with the idea that when you look at those, like what is the likelihood of breath being little and coherence being high, we do see the expected variations. On the other quadrants of the model, like that I did not really hypothesize, but really like come through here, we'll see that like absent use, we do have like high breadth. And the interesting thing that emerges in the results is that when you look at the distinction between startups versus diversifying entrants, they really take like very different approaches towards how they compose that like high breadth portfolio. Now, uh, with these results, I sort of showed you the like predominant one, but if you believe our story, there are a number of mechanisms checks that should be true as well, in that, well, are drones really being used in the category corresponding to their manufacturer's pre-entry use experience? The answer is yes. The other one is that, well, if these users are really narrow-minded, they should not respond to competitive rivalry. Well, they don't. The other one is that they should not like respond to market sites trends very strongly. And again, they don't. So with this, uh, a number of boundary conditions of our study, but I hope I leave you with, is that there are many dimensions of entry strategies that we can study. And we hope we have contributed to user innovation, sorry, and industry emergence literatures. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maka. Giovanni is the discussant for this paper. All right. So thank you so much for organizing this and thanks very much for having me in particular. So you see when you got the trailer, I, I got the full movie and, and it's nice uh, to be a discussion, but when, when you get, when I got this paper, I actually thought, what am I gonna say? Because it's not just um, a very interesting question uh, with a 
great strategy to collect data, which, you know, in the limited amount of time that you might have had, was not clear, but it's great data, okay? And, and it's also very polished in terms of writing, okay? So, so the question I had, what am I gonna say? And in the interest of time as well, I thought that I would make basically one uh, main comment, somehow articulated, and, and, and discuss it with a stream of consciousness that I went through it while, while reading the paper. And, and this comment has to do with the possibility to somehow generalize the paper and, and or maybe the possibility that, sorry, that, that to some extent you're, up, you're you applying to yourself the arguments of your paper. Let me explain what, what I mean. So uh, the way I got to this idea is that from the very first line of the paper, which is, as you can see here, this is a uh, copy and paste from, from the PDF. Entry strategies in national industry can shape how entrants uh, compete and capture value. That to me is basically meant entry strategy in the nascent industry can shape entrance strategy. Okay, and then I thought, okay, but that's somehow a tautology. But, but, but then I came to think about, you know, in the end, uh, there are a number of customer segments. And as you've seen, you can have a product which can just serve one of these customer segments or can serve more, which implies that there's an increasing breadth, or you can have more products each one of these products can serve different uh, customer segments or they can, and this implies low coherence, or they can all serve, for instance, all the segments, okay? And when I saw these and I thought about the first sentence, I, maybe because I just finished teaching, but I went back to the idea of, of Mike Porter and, 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 you know, the competitive strategy book and the idea that forget about uh, low cost and differentiation, okay? But that there's this idea that you can serve a particular segment, okay, of the industry, or have an industry-wide strategy. And I thought perhaps what, what you have is here is a focus strategy or multi-focus strategy if you apply to different segments. And then you have industry-wide uh, strategy, which are mostly linked to diversifying entrants with experience, diversifying entrants without experience and the novel entrants with or without experience seems doesn't really matter much. And I, I didn't get exactly the relative frequency, but I think that you have all these categories in here, okay? So then I thought, okay, this is, can be generalized in general to position where we know a lot about the consequences, but we don't know that much what's driving the initial choice about this. And when I thought about this, and immediately a paper came to mind, you know, uh, the effect of conditional marginal actions in a normal era of inquiry. And then we look at initial competitive position in an unfamiliar industry. And then again, this is driven by cognition where prior experience matters is a paper by Gavetti, Levinson and Rifkin. Is a simulation paper, of course, but uh, pretty much related to your area of inquiries. And then I thought, okay, if you have, uh, you know, cognition and positioning, one of the key messages of this paper is that, of the simulation papers, that any type of map is better than no map, okay, to some extent. And so I thought, again, looking at the industries where your uh, entrants are coming from. So if you come from agriculture, photography, so user experience, so you're, you have, the cognition, as you mentioned, it might also be a story of complementary assets, right? Because for the value, it doesn't matter that much, but still let's stick to, to, to cognition and you stress that. But then there's the other ones, mostly comes from aviation, electronics, robotics. So arguably something that somehow is technology related and perhaps even their cognition might matter as well. So to some extent, you, you thought that in the beginning this was described as a general purpose technology. And therefore, if you perceive that there's a general purpose technology and that's what your cognition is focused upon, then, then you wanna enter a number of industries, okay? So I guess that 
my initial point is perhaps that to some extent important prior experience on the demand side was known Halford Lieberman or the late Paul Jarosky mentioned that. Scott Morton finds that this might matter also in the pharma industry. But we know much less about what firms do when they don't have that demand experience. So to some extent, your first hypothesis is, okay, if I have knowledge of the downstream market, I, I go there, okay? And if I don't have it, I don't. But in principle, I mean, it should be random. It's not that they do the opposite. And so maybe you wanna dig more in, in what you do when you don't have that. And perhaps you leverage cognition and technology, perhaps you do something else. And then the other key question is to explain the multi-focus as I call them versus the industry-wide approach. Now, again, given the differences between uh, large firms versus startup, I guess availability of resources matter. But then thinking about this, uh, came to mind another paper by Adner. This is a model again, Ritalizer uh, and Zemsky, okay? And where they, again, they look at the, the harder competitive strategies, the question where firms choose to position themselves within an industry. Now they look at when generalists dominate. Now generalists here is not about, uh, it's mostly about when you're not a leader in costs or, or, or in differentiation, but in general, when you do a little bit of more, okay? And the key conditions there, perhaps you, that there has to be strong investments in technology that are highly scalable, and that might be part of, of your story. Another paper that came to mind is, you know, the old paper, The Benefits of Narrow Strategy by Rottenberg and Saloner, where, where you have the contractability and whether you're able or not to write contracts. And perhaps that can also help you in, in, in trying to articulate more what happens when you don't have the, those downstream uh, markets. Um, another thing that came to mind is, you know, that there's a number of papers in sociology that look at somehow product portfolio choices and performance. Uh, and, and by the way, perhaps market share is not necessarily the best performing measure for focus that you have in your study, because going back then to Porter right now, if you want to focus on that specific, it's not necessary that you want to maximize market share. But all of those papers are somehow uh, correlations or endogenous, the way you want to call them, right? Because they, you don't really know the drivers of those choices, but you have, okay, the, the, those drivers. And perhaps you can also engage more in, in a discussion with that related literature and try to explain, rather than finding your own measure performance, explain their own studies about performance that they have uh, plenty, with your um, with your findings, and again, more generally, I think that this is about nascent industries, and indeed, nascent industries are different. Now, uh, the question I would have is, what is really different in your specific industries, right? And certainly about technology, not really because you said it. I mean, it's an old pattern. We knew that. Maybe there's some system technologies. I don't know, uh, or about segments. But to some extent, you can say. I mean, if the regulators already decide segments, so maybe I can also understand them. Maybe it's about demand adoptions. What is really new about that industry? And which of your arguments are really about nascent industries, okay? Uh, Pre-entry experience shapes and entry cognition, maybe in a nascent industry, maybe also in a non-industry, okay? Use experience can facilitate understanding the customers in the nascent and also in, in the new ones. So I guess I would stress more what is key uh, for your theory to be a nascent, what is key for uh, in, uh, in your empirical context that, that match with that, because I think you can also generalize a little bit more, okay? Uh, more generally, and this is my idea, you have a number of firm choices that collects into facts and correlations. And one impression I had to some extent that you're looking at them uh, precisely with the cognition of the industry emergence, precisely because that's what you're studying, that's what your experience is. 
and the paper is written like you know a handbook of papers there's mechanisms there's you know the the uh, extent to which the theory can generalize or not but you may be doing a disservice to yourself by saying oh it's so narrow okay try to generalize it and i think there's a lot to learn from what you have strangely enough only one thing about the empirics uh and, and, and then I'm done. So the joint estimation of breadth and coherence, you say that there's a significant co uh, covariance between residual statistical control for the main variables, right? Uh, but if you go back to Arang and Bardella, that, that would be a sign or a proof that breadth and coherence are substitutes, okay? Uh, because that, that, that's the empirical st strategy that, that they would suggest. So there's maybe something that you wanna uh, discuss uh, with this. And I'm very much done. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you, Giovanni. That is truly wonderful. Now we have our fourth paper. Uh, Paolo is the presenter. Go ahead, Paolo. Okay, can you see my screen? Yes. Okay. All right, so, well, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to present uh, this paper. Uh, the title is The Grand Tour, The Role of Catalyzing Places for Industry Inception. Uh, recently, we changed the title for Industry Emergence because we thought that's where we uh, focus more and more closely. It's co-authored with uh, uh, my colleagues, uh, Emanuele Bianchi from CAS, Loris Gaio, and Alberto Nucciarelli from Trento, which are actually connected. And in a time where we all locked up at home, I'd like to share with you this beautiful picture that is actually where the catalyzing place is. This is the real catalyzing place we're going to talk about, which is the beautiful town of Arco near Trento in Italy on the Dolomites area. But we're going to talk more about that. So briefly about uh, the, the title and then when we studied this. So we start with this sentence from uh, Goethe. We are all uh, pilgrims who seek Italy. It might be just because the co-authoring team are all Italians, but uh, the Grand Tour, uh, it was um, basically an um, iconic journey that a lot of the intellectual elite, young intellectual elites, uh, starting with the, in the 14th, 15th century, did to find inspirations uh, and um, they would travel through specific locations in Italy, get some sort of you know, inspiration, then go back to their own country, go back to their own town. And they basically built many of the industries, uh, cultural industries, artistic uh, production, and as well the modern tourism is industry through this, uh, basically through this tour. And what this paper is about is about those places. Is that those places where we go to to feel inspired, to get new ideas, come up with something that becomes our profession, but we bring it forward, not in the place where we find the inspiration, we bring it forward somewhere else. Um, and uh, this is, um, let's say, not so, not super common, but fairly common uh, happening. It can be reconnected to some other places in the world. Here you see, uh, for example, um, uh, Tracktown USA for the running industry, also covered in a paper by Howard Granville and others. Uh, we have uh, Dogtown uh, in uh, California for the skateboarding industry, the Shaolin Monks as birthplace of Kung Fu sports and so on. So the, the bigger questions that we're trying to, to address is where do industries come from? And uh, specifically, we, we, we focus 
on uh, the periodization of Rajuri and, uh, and, and Maka and uh, Sonali. And we focus especially on the, you know, on the emergence phase, although we talk a little bit about the incubation and, you know, uh, some of the people on the panel today reminded us how important it is to, to look at this kind of uh, moments of the develop, development of the industry in this entire workshop today was about this. So I think we all agree that it's, it's important to look at it. Now, my interest of research usually lies on the inter, in, let's say, interception between industry and space. I try to connect these two aspects. Um, we know it is space is one of the different mechanisms that uh, connect uh, basically uh, specific actions, actors, uh, and uh, activities and artifacts to the emergence of an industry. Um, and we know that scholars and economic geographers uh, identify some areas that man maintain the generative identity as functions, uh, as birthplaces of key practices and therefore industries. But when, when scholars usually talk about space, most of the time they talk about clusters. So they talk about industries that are born in this sort of energizing places. Now, clusters are exceptional, incredibly important, but they're a rather limited subsample of what industries are. Most industries are actually not clustered. They are usually dispersed across regions or they maybe they have a cluster, but they're also dispersed across, mul across multiple locations. And uh, some places um, emerge as foundational practices and in industries, um, but the industry is not clustered where the birthplace is. And we have no account of the elements and processes that underpin this phenomenon. So our research question is, what are the mechanisms by which certain places trigger and sustain the emergence of industry that are not clustered around their birthplace? And um, so in, in the literature, we find fundamentally two streams that give us some hints. And uh, these are very different streams that don't talk much, much to each other, but they're to a certain extent complementary. One is a, a literature related more to institutional theory, spaces, places, and emergence and new practices that traditionally focus on intangible aspects of places, the, their ability to create shared identity, emotion, value, meaning, so that the people get attached to them. Uh, but they have a very limited focus on how they develop practices that lead to industry emergence. Usually they, they stop observing at the practice level. And then we have the, the wonderful literature of a user entrepreneurship, the works of uh, uh, Mary, for example, or Sonali, and, uh, and also communities of practice that looks at the enablers, technological patterns, adoption, emergence, reemergence, so on. But there's limited focus on the, on the value of space. We know the space matters. We know that the communities of practice often operate outside the firm, the boundary of the firm, but we don't know much beyond that. So um, what we're trying to do here empirically, um, we look at a phenomenon of collective user entrepreneurship for industry inception and emergence. It's a qualitative inductive approach. We use published sources, archival sources, interviews, and direct observation. Uh, I mean, some of us actually are climbers, not me, but uh, I, we uh, went effectively to, to visit the place multiple times, uh, especially Alberto and, uh, and Loris are located where the event is, so they have a great access to data and people. And um, so uh, briefly, what is the this sport setting? Uh, well, it's sport climbing, which is a global sport climbing industry, is going to be part of the next Olympic Games when they will manage to run the Olympic Games. And um, it is um, a modern uh, way of climbing. It's safe. It works on pre-bolted routes. It focuses on climbing moves more than the destination itself. It happens mostly indoors. 
and is effectively a mass market. Differently from you know, traditional climbing where all that matters is you know, the destination, so the high scenic point and it's dangerous, it's a very niche type of sport. Um, the phenomenon we look at is Arco and Rockmaster. So Rocco, Arco is basically the mecca of climbing. Is, you know, if you're a climber, sooner or later you don't go to Arco. It's, uh, and uh, Rockmaster is a sport event that they created at Arco back in the 80s, which is considered the Wimbledon of sport climbing. Like winning there is like being the who's who of climbing. And now the interesting aspect about this place is that despite the, the community is uh, hugely attracted globally to this place, and they go there and they come up with new ideas by interacting there throughout the year and particularly during the events. Um, they, there's no a clustering in local. There's no a concentration of companies. There are a couple, but not so many. And the second aspect is that it's a beautiful um, outdoor space, a beautiful outdoor scenery, which, however, celebrates an event that happens on artificial walls. So potentially you could host this event anywhere in a place that is much more convenient to, to, to reach, but they keep hosting there despite it's based on artificial walls. And that's also, I think, interesting. Um, so briefly on the phenomenon, this is a picture taken from the basically the early 80s when a group of hippie climbers after climbing all around the world decided to, to reun reunite in this place uh, with a group of five, uh, um, five climbers and started to completely redesign the, the practice of climbing. And as you can see, they lacked equipment. You know, some of them were climbing barefoot, other were climbing with uh, boots, which are boots for, for mountaineering, not really for, for climbing, and therefore they didn't have the necessary technologies. This is actually the group of the, the five hippies, uh, famous climbers that meet in this place. And basically this movement creates a revolution in the sports and a momentous change. And this cha changes completely the gear, the technology, and, and you know, uh, it changes, it creates a completely new, new sports. Now, what we try to do in, in our work, we try to track longitudinally all the events um, um, that characterize this industry, the firms, technology, practice, and institution. And what comes out is that majority of the events are ascribed to either ARCO or to Rockmaster to the event. So in the end, what do we deliver? Simply put, we deliver this process, which um, fundamentally says one thing, that uh, catalyzing places exert a specific set of uh, sequential forces on the communities of practice. Some are centripetal forces, so there are some elements that drive people to the, to the location. There are catalyzing places that speed up the interaction between the people, uh, the knowledge diffusion, provide contacts, reputation to the people who go there. But then there are some centrifugal forces who that eject the, the, the user outside of the space and force them to to establish the, their companies, their entrepreneurial ventures in other locations. And this is why the industry is not clustered where the, 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 the basically the, the catalyzing places. The event enhances this phenomenon because it, it basically reinforces all the underlying mechanism that creates this sort of cyclical uh, um, you know, um, process. This is just an example of how the walls and choose, for example, the technologies changes. So Arco was the one pioneering the first time in the artificial walls. And that's the one where the shoes started to, to be built by bent, you know, sort of, you know, to grab um, a grip on the, on the walls. And today, basically the, the dominant design is the one pioneered by the users in Arco. 
Um, so fundamentally, the theorization of our paper, also thanks to the amazing comments of the reviewers, is you know based on uh, a couple of aspects. So one is, is it a treatment or is that selection effect? So is it people get there and they get sort of inspired uh, accidentally? So the sort of accidental entrepreneur, to uh, use uh, Mary's words, uh, or is it a selection? So people go there because they know they can have this experience and that will basically enhance them. Well, it is a bit of both, but let's say in the first phase when the, camp, when the area was not famous, um, of course the, the, the treatment was dominant as the area becomes uh, renowned, it is more of a selection effect. So people go there because they know what to expect from the experience. And um, so, and we're trying now to track more precisely how many of the uh, entrepreneurs experience the treatment, the selection or, or both. And what is the driver? Is it a matter of the place or is it the event? Well, to a certain extent, they both matter. Arco wouldn't be the same without Rockmaster. Rockmaster wouldn't be the same without Arco. Um, but one interesting aspect is that, you know, uh, for once COVID was useful because it provided us an exogenous shock. So because of COVID, they had to cancel the event. And still, people went, some, we, have, we are collecting evidence of people who went nonetheless to Arco to continue the activities, even if the event wasn't there. They could have met anywhere else, much easier place to, to go, to much easier place to reach, but actually they went there because there's a, a valid uh, you know, and, and a strong attachment to the place. And this is a specific case of an event-based catalyzing place, but we, in the, in the paper, we also discuss about catalyzing places where there's no specific catalyzing events. So two takeaways from this paper. So there are these three forces that firm this sort of phenomenon, centripetal, catalyzing, and centrifugal. And there are two novel centrifugal factors that we are like in the paper. One is the springboard firm, which is the exact oppo opposite of anchor firms. These are firms that support user entrepreneurs to acquire key resources and knowledge, but they preempt them. Uh, they preempt the opportunities and the, for them to establish in local. So they teach them how to do the job, but then they push them out. And so we, we just oppose them to the concept of anchor firm. And then we have this idea of transferable economies. Originally, we called them dispersion economies, but we think we're going to uh, re rename them, relabel them, which is the opposite of agglomeration economies. So these are assets whose value remains constant or even improves, even increases, if you transfer them somewhere else. So there is a, an incentive in transferring this, this asset somewhere else. And uh, for example, context, reputation, finances in foreign currency, and so on. Uh, this was it. This is a picture of uh, Durer from uh, the Arco Valley that he painted during his Grand Tour. And this is how the Arco Valley is today. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, I love your pictures, Paolo. Those are amazing. Thank you. Uh, yes. And Pinar is the discussant for this paper. Go ahead. Thank you very much. I hope you can see my um, slides. Great. All right. So um, thank you for, for um, inviting me to this event. And thank you, Paolo, for giving me your paper. Um, I was happy to see that you do work on things that are not Formula One. And, um, and this is a very exciting topic. And I also, uh, you know, kept browsing pictures. And as you see, I uh, put a very similar one on the, on the opening here. But this is a very exciting paper, um, both very uh, polished and interesting and, and novel. I think it's going to make a, a contribution to the field. So um, 
just a few thoughts, and I'm going to keep these uh, quite uh, uh, brief because uh, we are, uh, I am the last speaker and uh, I know that uh, it's been a lot. So uh, some of the similar pictures, this is, this is a good example, but it is not a, a unique example in the sense that we know how uh, field configuring events, uh, periodic events that happen in a certain place. And here, in addition to the Burning Man, which, uh, which Paolo also showed, the Ducati weekend, for example, is one. Um, there are these kind of periodic local events which actually really contribute to the, to the development of, of an industry. And that is something that, in fact, we should study because it doesn't happen in that place necessarily for various reasons, but it actually, what happens there in a sense doesn't stay there. It actually, um, it actually really uh, helps build the industry. So uh, how can we um, unpack this and what can, uh, what can we do in order to uh, make the contribution greater was in a sense my, my goal here. So first of all, as I said, great topic. Um, I wanted to see whether you could fine tune the gap a little bit in the sense that, so in the intro, I have seen how you're going into, okay, this, this is a dispersed industry and in, also in your presentation, uh, do we understand how dispersed industries get uh, started? What catalyzes the emergence and what is the role of a place? Okay, so this is good. But at the same time, in a sense, there's there's more than just the place itself. There's a periodic event that's happening and there are activities that are that are there. And in a sense, my um, the goal of maybe my my presentation will be to uh, to help you focus more on the agency that is involved in that place in those events in order for in order to fuel the industry growth, right? So I think you can go beyond saying this is about the place. It's about the actors in that place, including I think Rockstar or whatever the name was, um, and what they do in during that time as well as throughout the year in order to help uh, bring the industry to a larger scale, right? And you know there are reasons why it doesn't happen there. And I'm, later on, I'm going to tell you about how maybe to focus less on the place and more on the actors. So maybe to just to go uh, chronologically in the paper, in terms of theoretical background, I, I did agree with your reviewers a bit that the literature is long and there are certain uh, kind of concepts that uh, that are useful, but there are too many of them. So user entrepreneurship, dispersed, in, dispersed industries, new practices. I'm not sure if you need all of these. And um, I like the idea of thinking about user entrepreneurship as a, as a focus, but then maybe let's not do user entrepreneurship and dispersed industries because one of them is enough, right? You know, you don't need both of them. And in terms of the research question, again, um, it, at the end of the theoretical background, your research question seems to be how do collective user experiences lead to global industry emergence, whereas at the beginning it was much more about dispersed industries and uh, places as catalysts. So in a sense, a bit, a bit more kind of coherence and uh, sharper reasoning would help here. But I think you can get there. You have everything. You just need to cut it a little bit. In terms of the methods, one of the things that I would love to uh, have a bit of clarity on is uh, whom you were able to interview exactly. Because for your paper, in my opinion, the, the interviews that matter the most are A, with uh, people who organize these events in ARCO, and I believe you've talked to them, and B, more importantly, potentially, who started a business somewhere else. And so because the, the idea is that one of the, the, the events are actually catalyzing the, the starting of businesses everywhere in the world, and we want to understand those mechanisms, and for that, it's important to see uh, to what extent these entrepreneurs, and so what they took away, and exactly. So 
for that, I think it would be good to clarify whom you interviewed and how you use these interviews. I think you have a great account of the firms that were started, but uh, how many of these firms did you talk to is something that I would love to know. Um, and then the significance of Arco as a place. So you emphasize the place and how people are kind of drawn to it and then they're in a sense uh, thrown out again, etc. Whereas I would encourage you to think of it almost like, you know, there's examples from literature, as you know, like nanotechnology, etc. Uh, field configuring events that happen in one place. And in a sense, this started because Arco did have the natural rocks before technology was used in order to create artificial walls. But so that was only at the beginning. However, after this, in a sense, this became a place where people uh, gathered in order to uh, in order to basically uh, do something together. And then this led to the emergence of the industry everywhere else. And this agency that happens is, I think, what, uh, what you need to focus on as a mechanism. So your mechanisms, in fact, you, you have the potential here to, to really go into the agency here, but especially the, the forces that attract people, and mo maybe most importantly here, what those local uh, organizers do in order to attract people, and how during the event and afterwards, potentially, imagine like, you know, uh, Academy, SMS, right? You know, what is it that that um, that uh, inspires us? What are the resources, knowledges that we could uh, get in order to do something? Obviously, we're not starting businesses, but, you know, the idea of what happens before, during and after the event that actually catalyzes the, the entrepreneurship. I wasn't so sure about the centrifugal sources just because it is a small place and obviously people are not going to live there, right? And so in a sense, the fact that the place throws them out is a bit less relevant in the sense that they come there for an event and then they, they go away. So I, I would actually de-emphasize the third one and maybe get rid of it, right? And finally, I think uh, the, the the theme uh, that I that I uh, that I want to push you on is to bring more agency into the picture. So specific questions, maybe that you can think about, and I think you have the data for this: is how do Arco residents, organizers, and Rockmaster executives make sure that the event attracts and fuels the industry, going beyond organizing an annual event? So what is it that really pushes people to go back and start this? Are there specific events during the whole annual thing that that uh, that help them figure out how to do this in their you know Colorado home or whatever? And um, again, you know, you can take advantage of some literature here. So a few ideas here: field configuring events. We have some literature on that. Knowledge generation in temporary clusters. You know, the idea of clusters being temporary, and then what is exchanged there in terms of resources fueling global um, industry events. So I think those uh, kind of uh, literatures might help. And finally, again, as I said, I would I would treat um, ARCO um, as, as um, almost like a conference place, but then look into the, the agency, the mechanisms that, that really uh, fueled the, the global emergence of the industry. Again, super exciting and um and good luck with it i think i think uh, that this, this is going to really make a contribution thank you thank you so much Renard, for your commentary uh, now we have uh, completed the four presentations and the excellent discussant commentaries uh, we would like to take a moment to have a group photo taken 
Um, so if you wouldn't mind, please turn on your camera. Uh, at the peak, uh, I counted that there were 161 participants. So this is such an amazing turnout. Uh, I'm so happy that we are able to get together and digitally that brings us across continents and to be in this special place with the special actors. So thank you all so much. Jiao, are we ready for the photo? Okay, so on the count of one, two, three, please say smile or happy, whatever you want to say. One, two, three, happy. We're good? Okay, all right, thank you. Um, so we only have until noon. Um, so we just have about 10 minutes, uh, maybe not even 10 minutes for the discussion. Um, but for the benefit of the people who are watching this video later, uh, but um, uh, will not be able to see some of uh, the amazing chats, I want to bring up uh, two pieces of information um, that would be applicable to everybody. Um, and then I'm going to pose uh, a question. So let me start by posing this question. It is a general question uh, for all presenters, authors, and discussants. And while you ponder about this question and how you would like to answer it, uh, I'm going to share the resources that I find in the chat room. It'll be beneficial for the people who are watching this video and not see uh, all the amazing chats going on. So the question that I'm posing is one that we received from the audience. Uh, for people who are interested in studying industry emergence and ecosystem emergence, what are the similarities and the differences? How do we study that? So question again for people who would like to volunteer to answer this question from the audience. Industry and eco emerge, ecosystem emergence, different, similar, how do we study them? Okay, the resources. So one of uh, the commonly mentioned um, ideas in the chat room is that uh, all these papers spend a lot of effort and detailed attention to the industry context. So this is um, a new, sort of a, a panel of stars um, who demonstrate how to go for a deep dive in the industry context through data triangulation, adoption of historical perspective, and that is uh, a key direction uh, that our literature is maturing and moving towards uh, for industry emergence evolution studies. Um, and then so here is uh, a piece uh, of information as resource. Uh, so Mary Tripps has pointed out that there is this industry uh, research association called Industry Studies Association. And the website is www.industrystudies, one word, industrystudies.org. So that is uh, a wonderful thing to uh, look into. Uh, now I'm going to ask if uh, our uh, presenters, authors, discussants would like to address this question about industry um, versus uh, ecosystem emergence. Uh, Rashri, you have your hand up. Go ahead, please. Thank you, Gwen. So first off, you know, it's amazing. Thank you again, Paolo. Thank you everyone to the SDR for creating such a phenomenal symposium. I personally learned a lot from my fellow presenters as well as the discussants. Awesome, awesome, awesome. To your point, you'll notice that all four of us actually very 
cleanly and nicely just skirted away from the fundamental issue of definitions that is being raised in this question. What exactly is an industry? What exactly is an ecosystem? And then of course, what is the relationship between them? You know, um, I am very sympathetic with people who turn around and say, well, industry definitions and boundaries themselves are fungible in some ways. So my own approach to this is when I'm thinking about either an industry or an ecosystem, particularly because what we can do is do deep dives into these contexts is that we define very clearly what exactly we mean when we talk about these concepts, right? However it is that you wanna, wherever it is that you wanna draw the boundaries of what you're examining, just make sure that in your paper, it is very clear what's your, what you're looking at. Now, in terms of ecosystems and industries, you know, in some, some studies, the ecosystem relates to what are the components, what are the complements that need to come together so that the industry is the supra notion and ecosystems are critical to be formed in order for industries to emerge. That's one way in which you can think about ecosystems and industries. The other could be reversal of the situation, right? That multiple industries or product markets need to come together so that you can have a supra ecosystem where many of these groups of firms that are similar to each other, which is the definition of an industry, then coalesce into a broader ecosystem to provide the uh, particular need, unmet need or technological uh, solution to those needs. So I think that's the way I sense make. I'd love to know what my uh, fellow presenters and discussants think about it too. But excellent question, and we need to continue to think about it too. Absolutely. Um, anyone else who would like to chime yeah. in on this question? Mary, please go ahead. So I agree with Rajri, it's important when we write our papers to be clear about how we're viewing it in this particular paper. Uh, at some level in my mind, you don't wanna to get too hung up on the definitional stuff um, because you could spend hours and hours debating what's the difference between an industry and ecosystem, blah, blah, blah. Um, my view though, in terms of answering the question is that studies like the ones we just saw, the emergence of industries, the evolution of industries, as well as studies of ecosystems at a fundamental level are looking at the same basic question of value creation and value capture. So how is value being created for a particular set of customers and who in the sense of competitors versus suppliers and you know, buyers in the traditional industry porter sense is capturing that value. Um, ecosystems, the same basic question. To me, the biggest difference between studies of an industry as opposed to industries where ecosystems are really, really important has to do with control and thinking about the boundaries and the nature of the questions that are asked in the sense that the biggest uncertainty in a new industry emerging has to do typically with demand uncertainty. We don't know what customers want. We don't know 
what technologies will be capable of. So there's this sort of dual uncertainty that dominates a lot of our thinking in terms of trying to understand new industry emergence. When we're looking at ecosystems, I think the uncertainty is different in the sense that typically it's less about, we don't really know what customers want and the uncertainty is often more around where where will the architectural boundaries of this interconnected set of players be drawn? And then perhaps most importantly, who controls the ecosystem? Who is setting the interfaces and the boundaries? And that has a much bigger impact on value capture in an ecosystem oriented industry than in a more you know, traditional, traditional kind of industry. Um, so to me, those are the sort of the biggest similarity. It's basic question, value creation and capture, but the nature of the, of the underlying uncertainties when you look at the two different contexts is quite different. Thank you, Mary. And Ryan, please go ahead. You know, I've been thinking about this uh, quite a bit, and at least in my head, I'm always thinking about this both uh, conceptually, but also uh, methodologically. And so for those of us that are organizational theorists, right, we, we often also think about fields and the notion of a field in some ways can help you or can hurt you. But, you know, at the core of that literature is really about the interaction, right? The sort of DiMaggio and Pal, even Scott's work, they sort of looked at these notions of the frequent and fateful interactions that allow actors to come together. And so if we look at it that way, I think one thing methodologically when you're studying these industries, there's two components and that is there's uh, you know, reviewers might push you on, okay, well, what's the level of analysis that you care about, right, in terms of the organization versus something that sits above it. And then to Mary's point, who knows uh, where they're going to push you if they want you to call in an industry recipe or a field sort of level event or in these different notions. But there's another opponent of this that I think is important for those of us that do study industries, and that's what is the unit of analysis. And so in these papers, what I think we saw today was a very clear intent to focus on very specific things, whether they be the mechanisms or these interactions where you could often see, I think what often happens here, there's moments of contestation or there's questioning or there's a debate, right? Around what does it mean for all of us to interact in this whatever ecosystem or industry or field that we're operating in. And to me, it's those interactions that create the, the friction, but also the juice for uh, the theorizing that makes this sort of work, I think, exciting for those of us that do it. Thank you, Ryan. And last comment uh, by Pinar, and then uh, Paolo will do the closing. Uh, we are reaching the noon time very quickly. Go ahead, Pinar. Thank you, Gwen. I'll keep it very brief. I think I think it's again a great question. I completely agree with Herajri, Mary, and Ryan. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to add was how, um, the way that I think we see from various studies um, how these two ecosystems and industry emergence, in a sense, co-evolve. Um, the way that ecosystems can be built across separate industries that then give birth to a new industry, something that we see uh, in several papers by now. And also, of course, um, the way that as a new industry emerges, an ecosystem then emerges within it uh, in the way that people start to interact and create value. So I think we need to always think about uh, the, the relationship between these two concepts, although I definitely think they're not the same. Thank you. Thank you, Pinar. Paolo, please. 
Yes, I just wanted to thank all the speakers and the participants to this wonderful uh, opportunity. I mean, I, I was getting so bored in pandemic and I just collected my favorite scholars in one Zoom and I made the perfect afternoon for me. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. And besides that, I'd like to uh, remind you that we have plenty of uh, events for SDR coming up and a new one that I think most of us will you know, feel very close to. We have this uh, writing retreat seminars, like writing retreat for writing reviews for the academy. So if you have your two, three, six, ten reviews to write and you need some sort of moral support in this, we join together. We, we, we try to encourage each other, you know, we support each other morally and we go through it together, stronger together. The next one is on February 5th and then we're going to have another one later on. So you can make sure you deliver your reviews uh, in, in joys and on time. And uh, our program, uh, <laughs> our program chair will be incredibly happy for that. So thank you very much again. And uh, the video of this uh, event will be uploaded on our YouTube channel in approximately two days. Thank you. That concludes our event today. Round of applause for the speakers, the authors, the discussants. Awesome. We'll see you around.